Uh, let me tell you a little story. It was the fall of 1982. Mary and I had just moved to James Island, South Carolina, which is part of Charleston, and uh, I had become the rector of an old Episcopal church on James Island. And I think it was about the second Sunday that I was there, and it was a fairly new environment, uh, although we had lived in the South, and Mary longer than I, I somehow uh, felt constrained in a sermon to sing a song. And the song is entitled, Please Come to Boston for the Springtime. Now, some of you will remember that song. It was a country-western song that became a crossover song <clears throat> in the 70s, or maybe in the 80s, but I think it was the 70s. And it, <clears throat> it's not what you think it is. Uh, Please come to Boston for the springtime. And he says, the singer, I'm sharing an apartment. You can come and hang out with me. Uh, I'm getting a, j a job as a waiter in a cafe, and you can sell your paintings on the sidewalk, you know, the, the way that Boston was and to some extent still is. And... Uh, then uh, she says, although it's his voice, she said, no, boy, you come home to me. And then she, but not in an imperious way, in a very touching way, she says, you, you can go to Boston. Please come to Boston for the springtime. She said, no, boy, you come home to me. And then she talks about her love for him. And uh, she says, I'm the number one fan of the man from Tennessee. Now the song continues, she, please come to Colorado, we can, can hear I love you echoing through the canyons. And No, she said, you come home to me. I'm the number one fan of the man from Tennessee. Um, reminds me of Kerouac's great uh, little one-liner, when rocks turn to air, I will be there. But in any event, then I think he goes to L.A. and he's got a house on the beach and he sees the stars and she says, no, you come home to me. I'm the number one fan. She's not censoring him. She's not attacking him. She's declaring her unfailing loyalty and love. I'm the number one fan of the man from Tennessee. Well, I sang that song, the whole verse, first verse about Boston and the refrain, and something quite extraordinary happened. <clears throat> about a week later, two young fellows in the congregation, they were both in their mid-twenties, came to see me. They were both single men um, working uh, in various uh, jobs. They were real low country regulars. They'd grown up in that parish somewhat, and they were real what we would have called uh, patronizingly, good old boys in appearance. And they both came to me. They were very good friends. And uh, <clears throat> they said, Paul, if that's the kind of ministry you intend to have here at old this church, we want to be part of it. As a matter of fact, we'd come, they said, looking me straight in the eye. These were hunters and fishermen and trappers, the exact opposite of the kind of person that I seem to conceive myself of being. And they said, Paul, if that's the kind of ministry you have, we... Oh, we we want to to to, to volunteer to, to work with the youth. We want to work with the the, the high school boys and girls of the parish. <clears throat> well, I just about died, and I said, "Well, tell me what what was it that gave you this idea? This is a wonderful idea, and I'm so happy. And I'm just going to say, go 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 go. But just curiously, what was it? And they said, "Well, it's when you sang, please come to Boston for the springtime. That that song, we love that song. It's so powerful, and you." 
sang it with such feeling, and we felt the feeling of the song, because it's not about uh, domestication. It's about uh, loyalty and uh, abiding, wonderful love. Now, these two fellas, it turned out, had a pretty checkered record. There may have been an arrest in one case. Uh, you know, there used to be a lot of smuggling of um, all sorts of things down in that part of the world. And uh, I, I had every reason to believe these boys really, boys, I use their word, they knew their way around the pluff mud and the the um, back alleys of the swamp and the uh, the levees, but it wasn't levees. You know what I'm talking about. And they both showed a little bit of living, and uh, they wanted to to try to do something. This was a classic example of an inspiration from love, and as I saw it, an inspiration into the heart and from the heart of Christianity. Well. I only say that because that song has enormous meaning for me, uh, and I would like to ask you to go and listen to it. Go on YouTube and listen to it. If it doesn't break your heart, if it doesn't make you cry, if it doesn't think, make you think about the one you love, whether you're from the east, the south, the west, or the north, um, I'll be very surprised. Now, I say it because <clears throat> I've just been to Boston for two weeks. I took a hiatus, as Mockingbird <clears throat> explained. I'm not sure I had explained it but I, in my um, When I'm 64 podcast, but uh, I, I took a hiatus because I was away, and this particular bridge back into regular podcast making, God willing, is a little bit of report of what ha- what happened when I went to Boston, because I've just gotten back uh, with Mary, and an, uh, it was a very eventful trip. But before I <coughs> uh, give uh, a little bit of a travelogue, and it'll be very short, the podcast is ultimately a reflection on a question that I've been um, thinking about while I was away, and that is still very much in my mind, and I hope will possibly interest you. I did uh, want to start by whetting the appetite, it may not work, before I uh, talk a little bit about Boston, about something that I uh, happened to um, find. I've been looking for it for about six weeks now, and I found it for $1.95 in a secondhand bookstore in Providence called Cellar Stories, Cellar Stories, and up, uh, it's actually on the second and third floor, and I found this for one ninety-five, a paperback that I'd been looking for, and there it was, and it is uh, a novel by Aldous Huxley called um, Time Must Have a Stop, and I'm going to talk about that book in the next podcast, <clears throat> and really about a question that the book, uh, 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 I see it as a profound question uh, that the book raises about the nature and end of human existence. <laughs> but uh, putting that aside for a minute, uh, Aldous Huxley of interest, by the way, uh, James Gould Cousins, upon reading, who was a fan of Huxley's, and the, uh, upon reading Huxley's last novel, which I think was published in 1962 or something like that, um, the, uh, called Island, uh, said there ought to be a law for uh, good writers to, um, uh, kind of a, a, a law that prevents them from publishing anything after they're 60. <clears throat> Cousins thought that Aldous Huxley's last novel, Island, was very, very preachy. And many of, uh, uh, several of uh, Huxley's later novels are, I guess, preachy. But um, I'm still going to talk about an issue that is raised, uh, of, of, to me, of, of, of real weight and interest in uh, his 1944 novel, Time Must Have a Stop. But I'd like to just uh, uh, whet your interest by reading a few tantalizing quotes from Time Must Have a Stop uh, to prepare you, you might say, for the next podcast uh, uh, before I give a quick, fun, and to me at least, I hope it'll be like a National Geographic Society lecture. Please come to Boston, because some interesting things did happen that relate to the themes of this podcast. Now, let me just give you a couple of... Uh, <clears throat> Of quotes, um, in uh, Time Must Have a Stop, the young author uh, is thinking about Keats at the beginning, and he says this. And then that phrase of Keats came back to him, 
quote, the giant agony of the world, exclamation point, double quotes. And then the uh, the character at that moment in the novel says, uh, quotes Keats, none may usurp this height, that is the height of the knowledge of God or heaven or wisdom or understanding. None may usurp this height, returned that shade, that is said the ghost, but those to whom the miseries of the world are misery and will not let them rest. None may usurp this height that is come to celestial wisdom. Let's just call it divine wisdom. But those to whom the miseries of the world are misery and will not let them rest. And I thought to myself, gosh, those to whom the miseries of the world do not become occasions of rationalization or self-justification or denial or all the things we do with the miseries and sufferings of our lives, but those to whom the miseries of the world are misery, in which we actually say they're misery. Just a couple more uh, uh, little quotes from from, uh, Huxley. Um, A particular character uh, talks about um, a certain category of persons, he says, You ignore the inferences of reality, says the character, because one really wants life to be a tale told by an idiot, just one damn thing after another, until at last there's a final damn thing after which there isn't anything. Now, that quote on page 85 to 86 of Thomas Never Stop is fabulous. This just describes the way life is for so many persons, you and me included, in all sorts of phases of our life. Just one damn thing after another, until at last there's a final damn thing, after which there isn't anything. That's how many people see their lives, or at least experience them. Let me uh, give you another uh, quote from Huxley's book along these lines. You, what we, he's talking about modern man, but it, it's this is uh, there's social criticism, but it's all tied into a very tight narrative about a, a young man and various relatives of his who come to various stages of understanding about their terrible, critical sufferings and sins, as it turns out, and selfish uh, runnings over other people that ultimately bring them all to a different place than where they started. Um, we ignore death up to the last moment. Then, when it can't be ignored any longer, we have ourselves squirted full of morphine and shuffle off in a coma. Well, isn't that the... I mean, that book was written in 1943 or something like that, but isn't that today? When it can't be ignored any longer, we have ourselves squirted full of morphine and shuffle off in a coma. I had a terribly disappointing experience years ago in Westchester. Someone whom I'd loved, who was a really lovely older woman, a widow, and I really knew her. I was with her in the connection with the death of her her much-loved husband. She was an older person, and finally she died, and I was far away in another job when it happened. But it worked out that I could actually get up to New York and uh, take the train out and see this person. And I did. I was able to. I may have been from Greenwich, but I got a car. I went to the very lovely um, hospice. It was a Roman Catholic uh, hospice near Terrytown, a wonderful place. But I got there about three hours too late. She had not died, but she had been, quote, squirted squirted full of morphia and was ready to shuffle off in a coma. She recognized me quietly. She knew I was there. I could tell from her look on her face that she seemed pleased. And I did talk to her and tried to have a conversation, but it was too late in the drug therapy for her last hours and days on earth. She was uh, under, uh, she was so under that I really couldn't connect. And I remembered, you know, if I'd only gotten here a day earlier when the pain wasn't such that they had, she was still aware and we could have really had a wonderful talk because it it would have been a good talk. At least I felt it would have been. And uh, uh, Huxley's words had come to pass. Now let me just read two other little quotations. One is uh, this. 
you'll, you'll like this. <clears throat> He's talking about some people in his family who are really terrific people. They are salt. They they really are pillars, bulwarks of the. the they, they are people who keep things together. They keep things afloat. You know, we all have somebody in the family sort of has a good head on their shoulders, is realistic and is a doer, and sort of keeps everybody else going by her sheer common sense and sort of non-neurotic character. And uh, he's describing these people, and this is what he says on page 213, an absolutely sterling goodness they had, but limited by an impenetrable ignorance of the end and purpose of existence. Without Susan and Kenneth and my Aunt Alice and all their kind, society would fall to pieces. With them, it was perpetually attempting suicide. They were the pillars, but they were also the dynamite simultaneously the beams and the dry rot. It was thanks to their goodness that the system worked as smoothly as it did, and thanks to their limitations that the system was fundamentally insane. Well, that's a very, that quote uh, deserves some care. Um, Let me give you two other quotes, and then we're finished. Since I was born, on page uh, two. uh, 27, he writes, 32 years ago, about 50 millions of Europeans and God knows how many Asiatics have been liquidated in wars and revolutions. Why? In order that the great, great Jan children of those who are now being butchered or starved to death may have an absolutely wonderful time in AD 2043. <laughs> An absolutely wonderful time in A.D. 2043. Well, there are a great many other uh, remarkable um, passages and ideas, although there is one particular passage about the nature of God that I really want to talk about. The nature of God, as Aldous Huxley wants to say it, and it relates very deeply to justification and to various Christian meanings of my Sharona and Christian meanings of life and the uh, purpose and end of existence, as uh, is uh, Huxley's phrase. And I want to talk about it because it raises a question that I've been thinking about at great, um, at least much time has elapsed in the thought process in the last few weeks. But before I um, do that, let me give you a quick update on some very interesting developments uh, while we were in Boston. This won't be too personal because it can't be, but it will touch on a few issues that we have um, uh, talked about uh, before on the podcast. And this allows me to be a bridge to the next podcast, which is on the nature of the absolute and the doctrine of God in terms of some very interesting uh, points that Huxley made in 1944, which have a tremendous heritage actually in Christian tradition, but are also struggling in a survivability or sustainability mode in light of the sufferings of life, which he is describing in the middle of World War II when he writes this book. One thing I did while we were in Boston, took a beeline to the Phoenix SK Club. That's the PSK, the Harvard Final Club that I've spoken about before and had so much fun in as an undergraduate in college and also have given a, a, a talk about. And I happened, to, by the grace of God, to see the son of one of my very oldest friends who was a member when I was there in the early 70s. And he's very involved in the Phoenix SK Club and is uh, an absolutely terrific guy. And and uh, he, it happened that we hit the last week of the initiation process towards the uh, the initiation, which I believe occurred last week in the club. And it's a ceremony that I'm very 
familiar with, although it's evolved a bit, and the whole ethos and sense of the club has moved as Harvard College has moved. It's it's gone with the times, and yet it is at the same time itself and is absolutely thriving. The Phoenix SK Club had the best punching season it's had, you know, in living or at least undergraduate memory, and uh, things are obviously thriving, and uh, Mary and I, I got Mary into the place, which had never been possible when we were there. Women were not allowed in the club except two times a year. Um, that's just the way it was. I mean, that's just a fact. What does Huxley say? The the donum is the datum. That which is the gift is what was given. Uh, that was the era, and I'm not going to defend it, and I'm not going to uh, attack it. Uh, but it just happened to coincide with the fact that Mary herself, my wife, although I knew her then, never actually made it. Terribly unfortunate woman uh, inside the precincts of the hallowed place. But now things have changed a little bit, and as an alum, I got the tour with her, and she saw where I lived free half a year when I knew her very well and many other things and there were a bunch of neophytes as they're called they're called pledges in other situations and these neophytes young Harvard undergrads and they were the nicest guys they were just delightful and uh, got to talk to them and meet the officers and it was kind of a very informal time of meeting with a number of members and it was a blast an absolute blast and they've even hung one of the posters from a final dinner as it's called back in the very early 70s with all my old friends names of sort of drunken signatures attached. They've actually hung it in the in the public areas of the club, and that, needless to say, touched me uh, in our Brideshead Revisited phase. But that's the not the only thing. Um, uh, I also um, was able to take part, but as an, obviously just an attendee, at the uh, Boston, they call it the International, Boston International Antiquarian Booksellers Convention at the Heinz Convention Center, which is just abutting there next door to the old Prudential Building where Mary and I used to go to a Polynesian tea Tiki bar in the 70s, a wonderful tiki bar. We thought it was called Bob Lee's Islander, but I think it was different. It, there, there was a tiki bar in 1970, 71, 73, 72, that was absolutely classic on the first floor, ground floor of the Prue, the Prudential Center. It's now swept away in favor of a mall the size of Croesus. And uh, But next door to it, the Boston Antiquarian Booksellers Convention, and it was absolutely fascinating. The prices, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, there were maybe 50, perhaps more but not many more booths of uh, sellers from all over the world, mostly the U.S., and uh, they were all very connoisseurs. They weren't; they, they were connoisseur sellers, and everything was priced for the collector. I mean, prices were 30% what they really would normally be, or even 50% what they, 50% higher, possibly double what they would normally get in the auction of the world. But this is a chance for these people to make money, their annual money, and so I don't begrudge it to them for a second, but I saw a signed copy of Dharma Bums by Jack. Jack Kerouac for $26,000. I saw a signed copy of The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maugham for some ridiculous, a very large amount of money. I came very close to buying a $150. I, I got the man down from 200 to 150 of a first edition of Visions of Gerard by um, Kerouac, which you've got to read. It's one of it's a masterpiece, uh, absolute masterpiece. I actually visited the house where he wrote it into Rocky Mount a few years ago, North Carolina. It, but there it is. Um, I, I just, I knew that I could get that for $50 off the internet and not uh, 150 But the, the, the signed copy of the Dharma bombs, um, Aldous Huxley signed copies, um, uh, you name it. I mean, I'm surprised. The, the, the big joke is a, a copy of the Bible. My friend Bill Bowman um, 
shown me a photograph, a copy of the Bible at one of these things, and it says uh, autographed version. You know, but but these these prices were absurd. But the items, I mean, you, you just could buy. If you had a million dollars, you could have a very very fun day. If you had a hundred thousand dollars, you could have an extremely fun day. There was a one two sellers from who just specialized in fantasy, sci-fi, and horror. And every single book I I knew about. I mean, every single edition I I I, I knew that that was the first edition with cover. You know, the prices were way out of my range, but just to stand in the presence, you know, in the presence of the original Machen and Lovecraft and Blackwood and um, Lester Del Rey, one of my favorites, or Ray Bradbury. I mean, the whole thing, there they were. So that was interesting, although ultimately unfruitful. And uh, also had a remarkable um, time uh, at uh, in Boston, uh, sorry, with, a, with a, a, a clergyman friend of mine, who currently serves there in a most interesting job, and uh, to really sort of understand, he's exactly my age, sort of how he sees not life in the larger Episcopal Church, but just life in a parish. How do you see restoration? How do you see pulling things forward? How do you see in a very secular age? Because even this great and beautiful parish has has had tremendous reversals in in, uh, not so recent past and the recent past, and is a huge and almost backbreaking job. And to hear his thoughts and his wife's thoughts about it, and sort of of them over in relationship to my own thoughts on such a task uh, was fascinating. Uh, and finally, um, there are a couple other things I'll mention in another uh, podcast. Um, we uh, 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 we went down to Providence, where my wonderful friend uh, Bob Whitcomb is the editor of the Providence Journal, and uh, I gave an address uh, to the Providence Committee on Foreign Relations, which is a wonderful group of um, of people, interested uh, people, uh, more or less in my age range, a little younger some, uh, maybe a little older too, a wonderful group of people in Providence who gather together once a month to hear talks on subjects relating to foreign affairs. And in this case, it was called Stateside Ironies of Muslim-Christian Tensions in Sub-Saharan Africa and Egypt. And I tried to start with the Church Missionary Society's founding in 1799 in England, London, and explained how the missionary movement in the British Empire had a great deal to do with um, with the current religious configuration of Southern Africa and how this has had an ironic and remarkable return, you might say, to America when the Nigerian and Ugandan and Kenyan Anglican primates and bishops had come over and actively supported religious traditionalists, or sometimes they're called conservatives, in the American Episcopal Church and Anglicanism in Canada and other parts of the first world to sort of hear the, the missionary movement of 19, 1820 is coming back in 2006 to help beleaguered traditional conservative Christians in the Anglican communion in the world from which the missionary movement began. And I ended by talking about that emblematic painting of Queen Victoria. The painting comes from the 1840s, I think, maybe a tad later, uh, receiving a Bible on a cushion from a Nigerian or Ugandan uh, African chieftain. He's dressed exactly in his beautiful robes, and he is presenting to her the Bible, which he has received, as it were, from her. That's metaphorically from England. And the painting, which is actually a, was a very famous painting in its day, sort of like Christ, the Light of the World by Holman Hunt, but in that category of fame, is called The Secret of England's Greatness. And it's this back and forth between the white Queen Victoria and the black 
tribal chieftain. Uh, the uh, exchange item is the Bible. And that um, painting is embodied in the current affinity of uh, evangelically minded uh, people in a mainstream denomination in this country with um, the dominant ethos in uh, Nigeria and uh, some other of the countries of Southern Africa that have a strong Anglican presence. And isn't that fascinating? And what does it really mean? And what are the historical ironies, meanings, uh, even amuse uh, anecdotes, and possibly hope, notwithstanding lessons, warnings, as well as promise of that extraordinary historical circle? Well, that proved to be a most interesting time. Now, I want to close, so this will be short, with the word that has been on my mind um, for the last couple of weeks, and it it really uh, goes to um, uh, something that uh, Kerouac uh, said, and it relates to something that uh, uh, Aldous Huxley hit straight on in Time Must Have a Stop, which, by the way, is a quotation from... I want to say Henry the Fourth, Part Two, but it's the death scene of uh, Hotspur, Harry Hotspur, uh, when he says, uh, I forget the word, but it has something about uh, time, life is time's fool, and so forth. And then he, this third uh, sort of uh, phrase or sentence is, and time must have a stop. And in uh, this book, he is uh, dealing with the nature of God and the oneness of God and the being of God. And uh, he says a lot of things that could sound and do sound and are in fact related to Hinduism, not Buddhism so much, but sort of Hindu notions, Vedanta, uh, um, what is it, Swami Vikananda? I always forget the exact name, but uh, it has, a, you know, people will dismiss it and they say, well, that's Southern Cal Hollywood mysticism, they'll say, of the 30s, and they'll talk about Christopher Isherwood and someone named Hurd, and uh, they'll talk about um, even Somerset Maugham in that period of his life, and uh, people will always categorize things, and that's completely wrong, because Kerouac said, I'm not interested in any kind of cultural, ceremonial, symbolic, and national forms of any one particular religion or any other particular religion. I have no desire to dress up in saffron and to embrace a certain style of uh, verbiage. I am interested in uh, the uh, uh, first and possibly the second of the Four Noble Truths, that life is suffering and that suffering is caused by desire, and possibly the fourth, that is, there is a way to 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 find salvation in the midst of suffering. That's what Kerouac said. And in Kerouac's thinking, he uh, came very much to appreciate, and you see this in Mexico City Blues, his astonishing cycle of poems, which after all this time now still strike me as being very deep. And for the Christian mind, they will also be interesting because there's a lot of, uh, he dots his hat a great deal to his Christian background, mostly very, very warmly and positively, uh, not entirely, but mostly in the Mexico City Blues. But he became interested in about the, towards the end of that cycle, and you see it very strongly towards the last third of his Sum of the Dharma, you see a Oh, uh, emphasis on uh, something called the the Sutra of the Sixth Patriarch, which was a Zen uh, a Zen Chinese uh, Sutra that's really very interesting. And uh, there are some derivative uh, teachings of other patriarchs after the Sixth. And uh, when you read these, you find that there was a certain kind of radical form of Zen that was moving towards what today is called nihilism, but I think that's false because that has too many bad associations. Don't worry. Hang on, everybody. I'm going to get this through this very quickly. 
Um, but the uh, notion is that the uh, what we ultimately come to when we disattach from all the frettings and the false uh, identifications of this life, which get everybody into such disappointment and cause such ferocious bitterness in old age and uh, 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 frustration and uh, paralysis and all the uh, f- things that flesh is heir to, we finally come to understand the one. But in this particular form of more extreme Zen, uh, the one is sort of nothing. The word void is used, the word emptiness is used, uh, and it's a word that really means that it has no hooks for us to hang our identification uh, claws on, and therefore a word could be said nothing, because there's nothing to hang our claws on, because it's you've detached from all the places where you're sort of falsely identifying self, is constantly, ineluctably, compulsively, and instinctually attracting its, its energy, and always disappointed what the Old Testament calls idolatry. Your heart is a perpetual idol factory, to quote Luther or Calvin or both. And so when you finally disattach from that, it has the sense of being nothing because it's not something. And yet to call it nothing as opposed to something implies a kind of um, emptiness that is opposed to being full. That is to say, you immediately get into reification problems. So uh, this one school of thought insists so strongly on its nothingness, and I understand where they're coming from and why they feel they have to do that, but that it it feels uh, in a sense like when you get to the end of the day, nothingness has a sort of a little bit of feeling like, uh, you know, pickup sticks, like your house of cards has collapsed. What is that song by Millie, whatever her name is, that brilliant singer from the disco era? I'm going to tear your playhouse down. You know, once your playhouse, which life is for most people, is torn down, that that there's nothing, you know, crawling from the wreckage to what? Well, the very question itself implies an idea that you're trying to crawl to something, and they get you in these incredible logical cleft sticks from which I saw but one way out, to quote, uh, um, what is it, uh, uh, Beyond the Fringe? Uh, so you get into an almost a semantic problem there. I find that the way that... Uh, Tuxley in um, Time Must Have a Stop describes what Tillich called the ground of our being, the ground of our being, which is one, which is love, which is light, which is truth, which is incredibly penitential in its impact on us, causes a complete ghastly self-penitence uh, and uh, self-repentance and humility, and also elicits compassion in the extreme for all the suffering people around us and suffering creatures around us. Uh, but people, the... Um, All the fruits of the Spirit that St. Paul speaks of in Philippians are the fruit of this abashed repentance that is caused by understanding the extent to which we've attached our egos to everything and the extent to which that has to be completely let go of in favor of a a one great risked for benign light of uh, truth, love, and utter uh, uh, emptiness of judgment. This is... um, differentiation, but let's call it judgment. Let's call it condemnation. Let's call it the ultimate light of both truth and mercy and complete acceptance. This is the emphasis in the very brilliant novel, uh, Time Must Have a Stop, that I will be talking about uh, in the coming podcasts. And I do want to close by saying, please come to Boston for the springtime. Thank you very much, and God bless.